was hanging out with Andy Richter at Disneyland one time. His family and my family are connected through marriage. And a bunch of people came by and they were like, hey, are you that guy? Aren't you, aren't you that guy on the show? On that show? And he says, yes, yes, sure, yeah, sure I am. I said, yeah, that's Joe Smith. They're like, really? Is that him? Yeah, that's Joe Smith. And then later I said, well, how could you be nice to these people? They're such a pain in the ass all the time. He goes, if I'm not nice to these people, I'm going to hear about it all over social media the next day. So I'm nice to everybody. Any celebrity has to do that. When did you move to L.A.? I moved here 20 years ago. For marriage? For To meet my wife. To, I, met, I knew her through her sisters, and I knew her through email and talking, and then just exchanging you know, photographs and videos and of each other, just walking around and stuff. She, was, she would always walk around in flowery gardens in L.A. and say, it's beautiful here. And I was like, <laughs> the per- plow- flowers are like fuchsia. That's not beautiful. They look fake. I didn't say that. but. And then I moved out here, and... Um, I thought I'd bring her back east with me. Like, I'm not going to live in Hollywood. You thought you were going to rescue guy. her from Los Angeles? My plan was to, like, get famous, get rich, get a house on the Hudson River, and be able to move, go, drive into New York every whenever I needed to, or take the train. But that didn't work out. I realized she's an actress. She's here. Family is here. Then her sister moved out here. So I was like, okay, we're not going anywhere. So I just drove, I took her car and I would just drive around. I didn't even know how to drive. I figured it out and just drove around all around LA. And then one day I just drove into Pasadena and I was like, oh, oh, I could live here. Because it's like an imitation of an old Chicago suburb or Indiana suburb. It's all craftsman houses, lots of big oak trees. It's beautiful. You must have had quite a bit of confidence if you were, you know, sending your emails and then just uprooted your life. Or you at a point in your life sure. where it was easy to do that? Yeah, I can. I mean, it came to the point where everything I was doing was online. You were in New York previously? That's where I became a cartoonist, got an illustration career, because in those days you had to walk around from building to building and drop off your portfolios mm-hmm. and do all that stuff. You had to schmooze a lot. And then after a while, I just got a computer and now I do everything through that. So it's works. I can be anywhere. Obviously, New York is and has been for a while kind of prohibitively expensive. It's, you know, it is now. I'm talking about 20 years ago. And it was still expensive, but I lived in Brooklyn and it was not that bad. At what point were you able to make a go of it as a, as a cartoonist? For the first like three, four decades, three decades of my adult life, I was not making it at all. I was just like doing odd jobs, drawing people's houses for a living. I'd go out to the suburbs and drop cards to people's mailboxes. I mean, that was always bread and butter money. It was always there. Every now and then I'd get an illustration job or like a job doing construction or something. But um, it was rough. I was poor all the time. As soon as the cartoon, the, my comic strip started, the Drinky Crow, mm-hmm. the Monkeys cartoon. As soon as that started, I started getting uh, in the New York Press in 1994, I think. I started getting illustration work. Because all the illustration directors would be looking through the, the you know, weeklies trying to find good artists, illustrators. So then I guess steady work ever since then. The irony of it is, you know, once once you're really successful, that's when people <laughs> finally want. Yeah, right. Finally. So you, you were you were hustling up to that point and, and just sort of, you know, dropping off envelopes and work and Yeah. But when the news when the comic strip came out and I started getting work through magazines, then I met my friend Danny Hellman, who taught me how to make a living as a cart- as an illustrator. It was helped me so much. He's like, he, he's like, okay, you got to go to this. You got to go to George Magazine on Tuesday. You got to go to the New Yorker on Thursday. There's a drop-off date for every magazine. Drop off your portfolio. Pick it up in a week. So you wait a week for each magazine or a few days, whatever, and go pick up your portfolio again. And sometimes you get work, and most of the time you wouldn't. But after a while, you start getting work regularly if you know what you're doing, or you have a, you know a style that that looks right for the magazine. Bingo! There you go. Diddly to boo boo boom. Ba ba boo. It sounds like your entire life was built around that drop off schedule. It was, yeah, at that time. Not my entire life, but 
the part where I was doing illustrations for magazines. But I was doing a lot of other stuff, you know, just crazy performance art and all that nonsense. Was it clear that you wanted to be a strip cartoonist? Only when I started the strip. I didn't have any idea that anybody could make a living at that. I had no idea. I didn't follow any of the, like, you know, Love and Rockets or any of the Dan Klaus. I didn't know who Dan Klaus was. I didn't know any of these guys until I actually started doing it myself. It must have seemed like an impossible thing. I mean, there are so few, especially underground cartoons, who have actually, you know, broken into the regular strip. Right. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. There were enough alternative weeklies to keep you going? Sure. I mean, it only brought me in maybe at the height of it, maybe $300 a week. So it was, you know, one night a week, I draw the strip, and then, you know, you send it out to everywhere. Some papers would pay like 150 bucks. Some papers would pay five bucks. So depending on how big the paper was. So the more papers you get together, I had maybe at the peak, I had about like 20, 22 papers. But, you know, mostly 25 bucks, 20 bucks. And that, that's just something that you do so that people know who you are and see your work. It's a calling card that you're getting $300 a week for. Or, like most alternative cartoonists, you're getting $30 a week because you're only in two papers. But the days of those newspapers, those alt-weeklies, is over. There's no comics in them anymore except, I guess, Tom Tomorrow is in a few. Um, the political comics are still around in them. But even the, those guys, like a lot of them, are just dropping out because... The internet came, and now you don't have to find out where to buy a prostitute. You just go online and find one. It seems like Tom Tomorrow, specifically, you know, Ruben Bolin, have right. made the shift largely to online. Right. It yeah, is, have, yeah. Was that not sufficient for you? It was, but um, I am a person who needs somebody to yell at me, where is the strip? You need deadlines. And I don't have a, somebody doing that. Yeah. I'm like, I have a hangover today. I'm not doing it. Oh, my God, I got to go uh, pick up my daughter. The hell with it. I'm not going to do this today. Whatever, any excuse. Yeah, and I'm terrible at that, so I never could hold a weekly uh, a weekly web page going. I should have, but you know what? I just moved on to other things. You didn't get better at that routine after having done it for so long. I had, I got really good at, yeah. at being afraid of an art director. Yeah, but now there's no art director. So who am I afraid of? A guy in in Poughkeepsie that's like Tony. I'm the only cool guy here. Where's my goddamn comic strip? It's just I can't do it for you, baby. I really miss it. I do really you miss do it. Mi- yeah, I love drawing that strip. It's been two years? since Yeah, since it's been canceled, yeah, since I canceled it. I had Drinky Crow. I had Drinky Crow climb drunk on top of a mountain, and Uncle Gabby was like, okay, it's time. He went up there with a shotgun and blew his head off. That was the end of the strip. How quickly did you come up with that one? Uh, pretty much right away. I think I had it in my mind the whole time. Did you actually have sort of a vague vision of what the last of those was going to I look like? Know. I knew it was going to go out, you know, Yeah, somehow. I didn't. No, I actually didn't think it would ever go out. I had no idea that the newspapers were going to go out of business. I mean, newspapers have been around since, like, Benjamin Franklin, right? I'm like, oh, they're going to disappear? I didn't think that would ever happen. It must have felt there, there was a somewhat finite shelf life for that, that, you know, or did you feel like you could just no. do it forever? I did. I thought I could do it forever. I mean, you can still pick up a copy of the Boston Globe if you want. It's right there. Not economically, but did you feel like it was something that you wanted to do forever? Yes, absolutely. I had disdain for people that would quit. I'm like, quit? You don't quit a comic strip. That's crazy. That's like like bringing a dog back to the dog shelter and saying, I don't want to do it anymore. You don't do that. You keep going. You created a child. You have you can't leave it alone. That's fair. But I was just saying, dogs, you know, sadly do have finite shelf lives. They do, yeah. But you know when it is. And you go right along. Now I'm sad because my dog died two days ago. Oh, jeez. I know. My poor little baby. Baby licks. She was soft and sweet. Baby licks soft and sweet. 
She can lick, she can eat. That's a song we used to sing to her. Yeah. <laughs> With me. I feel like we're seeing a softer side of you that we don't always get yeah. to see. Or a little topy. That is a problem with pets. Is oh, you, softer you know. side. Good God. My whole my whole side is a softer side. You just look at the tip of the iceberg. It was something that even toward the end you still enjoyed. What? The dog or the strip? The strip. No, at the very end, I didn't enjoy the dog at all. She's throwing up all over the house. No, the strip, I loved doing the strip from the beginning till the end. I just loved it. And every now and then I'd go through a slump where I'm thinking, oh, God. God, I'm not really doing very well the past few months. What's going on? And then I'll look back at the books because Fanographics publishes them. And I'd go back and look at the stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck was I complaining about? These things are great. I love my own work. I'm my own favorite cartoonist. I love me more than I love George Harriman. But you still enjoyed the process of doing it. I mean, it yeah. sounds like to some degree it was kind of a chore. Well, well, yeah, I didn't enjoy getting started, but once I was in it, down there, with my head in the page, like drawing the little all the little rocks underneath the the car or whatever I'm drawing. The little drawing, a little anchor, making sure that I get the the rigging correct. Even though it's a cartoonized ship, the rigging's got to be right. So I built a couple of ship models to make sure I know how to do that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, you could have spent a lot less time on it if it was becoming yeah. a chore. But you, I mean, it would be you enjoy easy. the meticulous part of it. It sounds I love like it. you know, I love this. The old newspapers, comics from the 1920s. I love you know Winsor McKay, of course. But he was like, for my experience, I wouldn't want to put the the detail, the correct, absolutely correct perspective that he did. I like to loosen it up a little. Mm -hmm. I mean, and besides, you know, who can put that much work into anything? The old newspaper comic strips, Mutton Jeff, the, all that beautiful old stuff, it's like Smokey Stover. The, all the little details are what's so much fun about it. A lot of it, it's, 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 it's sort of less architecting and less perspective. And your work is just so intensely detailed. I suspect yeah. that you spend, <laughs> you spend most of your time, you know, hatching and inking, things like yeah. that. I actually always tell people I never hatch. Although I have hatched late, I, I'm starting to do it lately. I don't hatch. I um, I just draw a little. I draw little lines closer and closer together. There's no, nothing wrong with hatching. I don't know why I was so against it for such a long time. I mean, Thomas Nass was the master of hatching, right? When we're younger, we do have um, somewhat arbitrary <laughs> positions towards things. You yeah, decide right. something at one point, and then yeah. you hold on to it for so long that you lose all perspective of I will why. Not hatch. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, nuts! I really have to get some gray in here. <laughs> A lot of people spend their entire lives trying to trying to get there, you know, pushing into syndication, things like right. that. It came together incredibly quickly for something that you spent so much of your life doing. I mean, I've been drawing comics my whole life, but just like for for fun, for friends. And um, I've been illustrating for since I was three years old. I mean, I've always done illustration work, mostly pen and ink, because that's just the medium I really like that, that I that I have mastered. I loved oil painting, but I moved around a lot in my life and I've never had enough like time or space to actually set up a painting studio. Every now and then I did. But and I love oil painting. But I've always been illustrating. I mean, drawing houses, even drawing houses, it's like, it's a lot of fun to draw the bushes and the stones in front of the house. It's more fun than the house, depending on the house. But I also did a lot of drawing work, drawing and drawing and drawing. But I never thought, oh, I could take this drawing and then I can make it into a comic strip. Well, you know, I made a comic strip in Brooklyn called Batty. I did, first I did one called Medea's Weekend, which is a lot of fun. And then it was a weekly strip, but, it, but and I was just, trying it out you know trying to develop a style and that was like i got ten dollars a week to do it and it was just fun because it was in brooklyn williamsburg when it was fun and then i did a strip called batty which is about a drunken baseball player that was in my friend spike rusho's murtaugh magazine and the editor of the new york press loved baseball and he saw that strip you know batty it's like batty how can you how can you uh, have any kind of a career when you have a battling, batting average point two ten? He goes, that's not my batting average. That's my blood alcohol content, you idiot. So, you know, it's like uh, booze jokes and batting and baseball yeah. jokes. I don't know much about baseball, but I 
Spike guided me with that. And then he, the editor saw that and he said, we got to get these like laugh. I, I saw him at a party. I was like, I gotta, I gotta get in with this guy. I walked over to him, started talking to his friends. And I was just, I said, I'm just going to be funny in front of this guy. I started cracking jokes and the guy started cracking up. And then he poked me in the chest, looked at the art director. He never would look at me, looked at the art director and said, we got to get this guy a comic strip. And that was that. So then I just did a good job. Then again, uh, after the first like three or four comics, the art director pulled Danny Hellman in there who did illustrations for them and said, what about this this guy, this cartoonist? I think Kaz had the same experience with the guys. What's about this? What should I do with this cartoonist? And he said, I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to deal with it, do this. He said, no, you got to keep it going. So that's why I know another debt of gratitude to Dan. You strike me as somebody who, you, you spend so much time, you get so immersed in the details. How do you know when you've sort of hit that you point? you got to leave enough. you got to leave some white space or it's just all a big mess. You, I know when to stop. You just stop. Sometimes I go overboard and I want to get all the stuff in, but I'm like, I know I'm overdoing it. But I don't care because it's like, you know, it's my strip. I can do whatever I want. It wasn't like I was drawing Nancy or something where you have to have exactly the right amount of minimalist drawing the rocks and everything exactly right I, it's like my strip so i could make i could experiment all i wanted and then i figured out if i want to do it if i don't do it so it's really a good looking strip i know when to stop when to put a lot of empty space in it when did you start doing longer form work oh that was maybe three years after or maybe two years after maybe one after the drinky crows strip started somebody at dark horse i just oh somebody at, at new york press mike mike gentile the editor there Art director. He said, "Once you do a one a full page strip," and I was like, "Oh, great! In color?" He said, "Sure." In color, I was like, "Oh my god!" It's like a, when I was a little kid, my grandfather would save all these these comics pages from the newspapers, and he, he had saved them for like decades. And I would sit on the living room floor in his in his place and smell like turpentine and linseed oil because he was an artist. He and, his, and my grandmother and I would go through the pages one after one. These big Sunday pages, just full pages of one one comic strip, you know in this beautiful color that would bleed and catch at the bottom. And just going through them one after one. This is the only comics I ever liked. I never liked comic books, except Sad Sack, of course. So he said, yeah, do one strip. I said, okay. I, so I did it, and somebody at Dark Horse saw it, and that was that. Phil Amaro was my editor there. They said, okay, let's do a book. So I did the Sock Monkey book. Then I started doing Sock Monkey books. It sounds like you made the transition pretty quickly from doing this sort of <laughs> illustration work, drawing, literally drawing houses for people for yeah. 50 bucks a pop to becoming an actual yeah. successful cartoonist. Uh-huh. It was, I, was, I was really lucky. I hit the, the weekly scene at exactly the right... And I had all the chops from doing all that illustration work, so I knew how to... And plus, I've, I've always drawn a little bit of comics, but so I knew how to do it. And just suddenly, boom, there was an opportunity. I was lucky because there's no... You can't do that anymore. You have to get online and hope people yeah. give you hits. Were you actively seeking animation work? I know there's been, you know, a number of different, some short form and some attempts to make some longer animated series of the uh, of the strip. No, those are attempts at making money. <laughs> I mean, during the Drinky Crow show, uh, it of course didn't look the way I wanted to at all. But I tried to control it as little as much as I could. I did a lot of the drawings, and but I knew it wasn't going to be the strip. It was going to be something else because it never is. You can't. Yeah. There's too never many happens. cuts. So I tried, you know, to do something. There's a, some other writers working on it because I can't really draw. Do I can do writings for short short periods of time? Writing, uh, you know, j- gags and stuff. But the whole idea of doing a whole narrative that's funny all the way through is foreign to me. So we had some really good writers working on it, and uh, I got more money that year, even though it wasn't very much. It was more than I was making drawn comic. Did you enjoy that process at all? Yeah, I loved it. You take the check, bring it to the bank, and you just put it in <laughs> as there. As far as the work that goes in before the uh, the check yeah, is cashed. Go home, look at the 
Look at the bank. Do it with the bank on, bank online and look at how much money was in there. It was great. Are you ever going <laughs> to attempt to be on that side of the creative process, though? Of- Absolutely. Yeah, I got Hollywood Big Shots right now working on a Sock Monkey movie, but I can't talk about it because I don't want to jinx it. Like, I've jinxed every other project since since the strip came out. D- does that motivate you to be a little more hands-off with the project? Um, it, no. It motivates me to know when to back up and when to go in. Because if they're fucking it up, I go in. And if they're moving along and chugging along, I don't want to screw that up. Because, you know, animators know what they're doing. And I don't know what I'm doing with animation. But if they start doing something wrong, I, it's easy for me to go and say, this is wrong. In terms of being true to the character and the story and the framework. True to the character you've... of the story. Uh, also, it's going to have my name on it. And it's my characters that they're animating. So I want to have some control over, is this stupid? Or is this... Good. These are the uh, two choices, stupid or good. So I try to go for the good. If it's, I mean, if it doesn't have to be just like the strip, it never will, but it has to be something good. So that doesn't mean, though, in in this regard, really being super hands-on from the outset of the project, but just kind of monitoring what they're working on? Yes, yes, exactly. I'd like to, what's the the title in in filmmaking now? It's not, I wouldn't be the art director, of course. I'd be like a creative consultant. Creative consultant. Yeah. That's it. Created by the creative consultant, Tony. Do you feel that you've been in this long enough and the people that have approached you for the work have, have really kind of given you the ability to have some oversight on the work? I mean, that, is that part of the deal for you from the outset? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you try, you, you do what you can. It depends on the project. If I'm working on an Adult Swim project, I can pretty much put my foot in everywhere I want. But it's, you know, sometimes that's, not, that's a terrible idea because I don't really know what I'm doing. As far as narrative, you know, the story, the story arc and all the... I mean, it's only a 15-minute cartoon, but that's kind of a long story when you look. I mean, it's, yeah. You don't feel that the experience of having done the, the longer form books, of having done, you know, the Sock Monkey stuff has, has given you some sort of experience with regard to, you know, writing a larger narrative? Yes, I have written longer scripts too. The problem with that is I can't write to an audience. I can only write for myself. And that is great for literature. It's great for comics. But when you're on a, doing a TV show on TV, you have to get ratings. So you have to do something that somebody wants to put a TV commercial on. And then, you know, then, you know, you get into that and you're like, I'm like, mm-hmm. I really don't like almost any television shows. I do like Hogan's Heroes, but that's that's an old one. I watched it's it on been YouTube. a while since that one. <laughs> yeah, like, they were still making new episodes of that, Tony. <laughs> Hogan! Hogan! You feel you just don't have enough of an understanding of, of the television medium? I mean, even yeah, having worked... I, I don't know how to please the crowds. I can't do it. Even my comic books don't sell a lot of books. They get awards <laughs> for being great art, but I don't really sell that many. I mean, it's because, you know... You got to be a genius to know what I'm doing. I sock monkey though, especially you know, you run the risk of getting really kind of sappy and nostalgic with something like that. Risk. That's the whole point. Sap and nostalgia. That can be done in a really crass way. Yeah. It could be really over the top. You got to pinpoint it. I really, it's really important to me. I love the memories of my grandmother's old house with the stained glass windows in the parlor, and yeah. the, you know, I want to capture that the memories of that beauty. But I can't manage to get. The smell of my grandmother's Toll House cookies into the books. <laughs> I read somewhere that smell is most closely tied to memory. It's true. It's I, I was in an old hotel one time, really old building, and there was a dumbwaiter, and I put my head in there, and it smelled exactly like my grandmother's porch, and I just like fucking went right back there. I remembered everything about her. When you did start working on the Sock Monkey stuff, how did that end up being the tone for the longer work? I mean, do you feel like the strip, the humor, the nature of the pacing doesn't really lend itself to doing something longer? You don't have to hunt for the jokes. If, yeah. you, if you're doing dr- no, Drinky Crow, it's got to be funny all the way through. And I tend to do like when I'm when I was doing some scripts for the Drinky Crow show, 
that none of them ever got used because they they just didn't work. They didn't pick up your scripts on your own show. It was a it was a it was we, we had writers meetings and I, they were they they you know I had a lot of influence in the scripts, but for me, actually writing an actual script for a TV show, I can't really do it. I could do it. Probably be great. Now that I think of it, damn, I should have done it. What's wrong with me? Is there anything you can't do, Tony? I could do that. It's just a cartoon, for God's sake. There's still time. Yeah, it's Mighty Mouse. Do you feel that when it comes to trying something outside of comics, that you have too much self doubt in your own abilities? I like to sell my ideas, my my characters, and the world that I've created with these comics in my in my studio. Ship paintings all over the walls. Uh, drinking Budweiser at three o'clock in the morning, drawing and drawing and drawing, just getting into it, just loving it and creating this world. I like to take that, give it to somebody who knows how to make a lot of money with it, try to uh, influence them and help them make it. Yeah, that's good. Don't do that. That's stupid. That's good. Then get the paycheck. Boom. Put it in the bank. Hello. Sit down and draw more things. And you know what I mean? And get back in. I don't want to actually get involved in that kind of work. What I want to do is sell my work to somebody who knows how to make money with it, help them to try to get it right and good. Meanwhile, I'm basically back at the drawing table, just drawing more stuff. I love drawing stuff. I'm working on a new book called Tony's True Tales, and I'm really enjoying that because it's so much fun. It's I'm back to it's like I'm back to doing the Drinky Crow strip again. What I'm doing is taking stories from my life, which was before I sat down and became a cartoonist, was a very adventurous, insane life. Yeah. So I get a lot of good stories to write. You know, near-death experiences, all kinds of crazy shit. I lived in Berlin in a squatted house for a while. A lot of knucklehead stuff happened over there. Uh, I actually kicked out of a squatted house for not being organized enough, believe it or not. That's a point in your life when it's time to take a good long yeah. look in the mirror and see yeah. see that you're maybe the, the through line with these yeah. problems in your life. Yeah. I'm too disorganized for the anarchist punks yeah. in an abandoned building who shit in the sto- in the hallway. What is it about that that really brings you back to the feeling you got when you did the strip? Now I'm I'll be writing the stories of what happened then, but I'll be doing it with Drinky Crow guiding us along. I'll be doing it with Uncle Gabby as my buddy. You know what I mean? And now, Because a lot of the strips, the comic strips I did, the, the Drinky Crow strips... Actually, they're called Mackies, but I call them Drinky Crow because everybody knows what that is. And everyone I can I pronounce that. I the strip Drinky Crow from the beginning, but I didn't know where it was going to go. So it, was, it was the pronunciation that always got me. Like, yeah. no two people pro- ever pronounce the strip the same way. I started calling it, at first I called it Mackies. Yeah. But then Mackies sounds like a little bit too much like Mackies, if you use a Boston accent. Mackies, Mackies. Mackies is a an insult for Jewish people in a New York, New Jersey area. So some people said Mackies. I said, no, Mackies. Then I changed it to Mackey's just to avoid that altogether. It's just two A's, whatever. I don't even know what it doesn't mean anything. It turns out it means seagulls in Swedish, I think. So anyway, it, so I'm now I'm working on this book on yeah. this strip. Tony's True Tales is told by by Drinky Crow, and I can just like do these illustrations, like, and I can draw myself as a total cartoon character or a real life portrait. And I used to do them in my comic strips. Yeah. Just like as a break every now and then, I'd just like tell a story about something that happened. You're inhabiting that space because you are actually literally returning to those characters for the right, book. Right. Why are they a good cipher for your own stories? Drunken Crow is always funny. A monkey, what are you going to do? It's a monkey. Sure, it's a drunken Irish monkey with a hat, but it's a monkey. So, you know, if I incorporate them into the stories in the story, they won't become as dry as playing regular, you know, autobiographical comic strips. And it will, um, it, you know, I can liven it up. I can have fun with it. And I can do a lot of the old Drinky Crow drawing stuff that I used to do. I mean, in part, it's just because you enjoy that so much that this is basically exactly. an excuse to get back into it. I enjoy it. And if I'm drawing something that I enjoy, I'm sure other people will enjoy it. Is part of it just sort of a concern that people, you know, might not necessarily be as interested in your own stories from the outset? That it's 
good to have this little hook of something they're obviously familiar with. No, my stories are very interesting, believe me. It's a hook to help get people into it in the first place. These are characters. I understand your they... question. What, what I really mean is that it's it makes it more interesting for me to do it because I don't want to draw a man in a tuxedo, yeah. you know, getting drunk in Amsterdam, pouring birdseed all over himself and watching the pigeons peck it off and then screaming while tourists come and take photographs of yourself. That's part of the story. Sorry. I have noticed a through line with a lot of your work. That the... the burp? <laughs> no, the drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, uh, the 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 comic prior to it. I mean, that was an aspect of it as I well. I do like a a drink. I was uh I was just thinking about that because I had a real kinship to with Anthony Bourdain. I mean, I did some I did some drawings with him for him. I did some uh, posters and some T-shirts. He's been this crazy. I've, I'm only seeing this now. This crazy through line in so much of comics. He had right. seemed to have a genuine interest in it. He um he liked my Jerky Crow comic strip. And because, you know, it's a drunk and there's a lot of stuff about food in there, about people eating whole cows in front of a vegetarian, that kind of stuff. And um, and I felt that I hate talking like that because I don't want to, like, make, you know, I'm the real friend. You know, I don't want to do that. He's my Tony Bourdain. But what I'm saying is that um, he had this thing about him that was always this sort of an alcoholic attitude, kind of like mine, where I'm going to enjoy my life and I'm going to get really shit-faced. And I'm doing it partly because it's a form of suicide. It's like your life is going along as a sober person. You're just doing things that you're doing, and you're like, "God damn it, this sucks." Now I just banged my head on a, you know, on a thing, and my girlfriend told me it's time for me to move out. And fuck, and you just get shit faced as a way to just temporarily kill yourself. So booze for me is like a temporary form of suicide. But to see him actually go all the way through it, that really surprised me. Of course, it surprised everybody. That particular analogy, you know, the situation with, with the girlfriend, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, though. I mean, part of the reason why right. you're, you're doing these horrible, shitty things right. that caused her to break up with you is probably the alcohol. Oh, yeah, of course. Exactly. It's the beautiful cycle of life. Some would call it a vicious circle, but not me. Were you ever sober? Have you, Never. Have you, you haven't been through those, uh, been in the program and had the oh, five-day like, chip? You mean sober for like more than a couple of hours? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually went for a month one time, about uh, 20 years ago, no, 15 years ago. What went for longer than that. I went for a whole month. It's my 30th birthday, and I thought, you know, this Russia with the whole Russia and Trump thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Whenever I start a story and I say, you know, I go to the news. I said, it's time for me to stop drinking. I'm only going to drink beer and wine. From now on, because it's just too much. The vodka's like getting me in jail. It's it's bogus. Your definition of stopping drinking and other people's definition of stopping drinking are oh, not yeah. so the same thing. I'm not going to give up booze altogether. So I said only beer and wine. I said okay, that'll. I mean, you can't get that drunk on beer and wine. I found out you really can drink get drunk that drunk on wine because I took two bottles of Merlot and I just chugged them down as fast as I could. It was my birthday, right? Wee! And I put on my suit. And my friends were all there. We were ready to go into New York City. I like to wear a bow tie in those days. Not Tucker Carlson style, but, uh, you know, uh, Dean Martin style. And so we got in and we, like, the cab came and there was five, four people already in the cab. It wouldn't take a fifth person. So I got a little angry because of the Merlot, I think. And I got on top of the cab and I started banging on the, on the guy's windshield. What's wrong with you? I was up there hanging onto the light up at the top. Let me in. What's wrong with you? So he took off. My, the, my friends all jumped out of the cab. The guy took off going up the street, and I thought, he's either going to go faster or he's going to just let me off. He's probably not going to let me off. I better just jump. So I jumped at about maybe 30 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour. 
And I rolled because I'm a good faller. I've been doing it for a long time. It's an important But I rolled, skill. but I didn't. I'm lucky I didn't hit a parking meter yeah. or something because that would have been the end of me. And I rolled it and I went in between a parking meter and a street sign. And it was, I was okay. I just had a big rip in my pants. And that's okay. So after that, I was like, okay, that's it. The next day, I said, I'm just going to, I'm really, this time, I'm really going to get serious and I am not going to drink any wine. So I only went to beer. Of course, a couple of days later, I had got into more trouble. Then I said, okay, that's it. Fuck it. I'm going to just quit drinking. See how it goes. So I quit drinking. It lasted about a month. And I said, what is this? This is supposed to be better? This is terrible. You didn't have that moment where you're up the next morning at 5 a.m. jogging and you realize that you've been wasting your life away the whole time? Jogging is funny. Uh, my daughter, when she was about five, we went across the street and we had to go quickly because the truck was coming or something. So they, they ran. My two daughters, they ran. And I, I ran a little bit, kind of skipping along. And my daughter said, Daddy, I didn't know you could run. Because I haven't run since I was in college once just to catch a bus. But anyway, so no, I didn't get up and do jogging and all that. I just got up with a hangover and said, oh, no, I got up, yeah, with a hangover and said, I will never drink anymore. And then it just, the hangover wore off and then it was just nothing. Just nothing. What do you do? Like sit around staring at shit? I mean, I assume you do the same things I, that you do in regular life, but without, you know, a, a drink in your hand. Look, I'm on top of cabs. You can't do that when you're sober. It's ridiculous. People seem to live like full lives without alcohol. I'm I'm not one of them, but uh, people seem to be able to, you know, lead somewhat reasonably happy and fulfilling lives. It's beyond me. Yeah. It baffles me. How can they do it? That was just, uh, I'm just kidding, of course. I've probably poor people out there who are staring at a bottle in the window across the street don't get it. My brother quit drinking uh, for like 20 years. He had quit drinking that, and then after about five years, he... Said, ah, hell, I'm going to just have one beer. Walked past his favorite bar. I just had one beer. He went in there. Next thing he knew, he woke up, and he was in front of his house in the snow, in his underpants, locked out in Boston. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Not a totally uncommon occurrence in Boston, but uh, still. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like there's something um, maybe in the blood on this one when it comes to alcohol. My dad and mom were pretty pretty good on the booze yeah you joked actually before you came over that uh, that you're bringing over beer because you're an alcoholic it's like, i'm not quite sure how to read this one like you're kind of being <laughs> joking exchange but i mean do, do you feel like if you attempted to just give up drinking altogether that there would be you know some negative physiological aspect to it at this point i can't uh fig- i can't even imagine what that would be like i mean that month the thing was i went with my girlfriend to uh at the time for it to mexico Sober mm. for a month, and we took you know a trip. If you're gonna go be sober somewhere, it might yeah. as well be Mexico. I know on the Yucatan Peninsula on the beach, right in some little tiny town of Tulum. Like, yeah, it's beautiful. Everybody's drinking tequila and wine, and you know I was like, oh, oh what? Okay, but you know, she said I didn't stink anymore, and so things went really nicely. And after about two weeks of that, I said, you know what? I think I'm only going to last about a month on this one. I'll give it a month. It'll be like a drying out period. Yeah. But then when I went back, I went back to no vodka, no wine, only beer. So now I only drink beer. Okay, I'll have a shot of tequila now and then to kick the beer, make the beer sure. work stronger. But only one or two. At two at them. Okay. Two at them. Okay. Three at the very most. How understanding is your wife on this aspect? I mean, My wife? She, yeah. No, I don't know. She she likes a bottle. Of, she likes a glass of wine now and then. At a certain point, it's like, hey, let's think about your health. Health? Yeah. Is no, this not a thing beer, that that Budweiser is very healthy? Yeah, it's mostly water. Keeps you hydrated. Good for you. You know, I got a lot of German blood. I got a lot of Irish blood. A lot of English blood in me. 
I'm supposed to have booze in me at all times. Do you feel like it's been beneficial to the creative process? Of course. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, if I quit, I could, I, my comic strips were just as good when I was sober, but they weren't better at all. Every time I draw a comic strip or any drawing at all, I have to sit down, get some beers. After about the second or third beer, then I'm then ready to start. I got to relax. It sounded like you were saying that more that it, it it hasn't had an adverse effect, but no, no, not at all. No, it doesn't make it better. There's a lot of obviously like romanticizing around no, certain that's substances. That's nonsense. It's just like you know these writers that drink whiskey and say they can't do, do it without drinking whiskey. They're probably right. That's just because they're hooked on whiskey. You know, you can't be sitting around going, "Shit, I'm addicted to whiskey. I think I will not have any." And then write. That doesn't yeah. work. You're just thinking about where's the whiskey. Uh, you know, this life is filled with a billion foibles. Who knows? Maybe I would be healthier if I didn't. Drink, but it's less that it's made it beneficial, but you know, the reason why there's so much overlap is because he, says as he pops a Vicodin. I have a backache, I have to have a Vicodin every now and then. I think maybe it's, it's less a matter of, uh, of alcohol being beneficial to their creative process and more the fact that, like, people who often are drawn to write or create for a living are just depressed and therefore drawn to drink a lot. You know what? I don't know anything about that. I do know that everybody has their own personal way. I don't think make, drinking booze makes you better or worse at you were. I mean, a lot of, it makes you worse at a lot of things. Sure, if you're a bus driver. Yeah, if you're a bus driver, or yeah, you're, you're working at a at a milling a metal milling mm-hmm. factory. You don't want to be air traffic controller. I mean, there's any yeah, number right. of jobs that alcohol would make Steel markedly worse. As far as creative creative stuff, you just got to get comfortable get, and do your work. Main thing is just do your work. The reason why there's so much instance of alcoholism around creative people is oh. less that the alcohol makes them creative and more the fact that like people who are often drawn to making this kind of work are just kind of dark. Yeah, it could be. There's depression, and, and it sounds like you were alluding to that a little bit, at, at least with regards to Bourdain. Oh, yeah. The thing is, you know, when you de- if you get depressed about something and you do something like you get drunk because of it, that's just because you like booze in the first place. You go to a comfortable place. Where's that? Oh, the last time I was drunk. It, you know, and if it's if it, if you're a cigarette smoker, you, a girl breaks up with you yeah. and you're like, fuck, you just start smoking. You know, you have to go someplace comfortable. And for me... Being shit faced is really comfortable. Unless it's too unless it's too much and then I get in trouble and then the girlfriend leaves me and then I'm like, Oh, there I go again. I mean obviously you've had it under control. I mean you've control. you know you've, Yeah. I you, guess you call it control. You know, you know you're, it sounds like you're living a pretty nice life in, in Pasadena, you know, married yeah. and, and two kids. Two kids, a dead dog, a lovely wife, a nice little house. It's, it's great. But the, the good thing is that I somehow managed I don't know how I did it and I don't know it's how the human body works, but I managed to not Drink vodka anymore. I don't want to be that drunk. And beer. How 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 many beer Budweisers do you have to drink to get shit faced? But you know, there was there is actually times uh where I've hit around beer number twelve, fourteen, where the drawing starts getting really shitty and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, damn it. I gotta do half the page over again. You can see it's all Yeah. Tony's Good a pen. Sometimes I'll like find these weird like scribbles that go on and on. Like what the what was I thinking? Like insanity scribbles just from yeah. Budweiser. But that doesn't happen that often anymore. Those uh, those notebooks in Crumb the, with the brother who just kept drawing, you know. Oh, right, yeah. He just kept trying more, yeah. like, more and more intricately detailed things until... And then so it just numbers. Came, and then yeah. the same number over and over. Yeah. Just just basically lost sort of like all meaning. It just became yeah. an abstraction at a certain point. Yeah. But while he's doing it, it probably meant a lot. Zero, 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 zero. I don't know. You know, people. some people drink, some people don't. It's basically it all comes down to trying to analyze that and why. It's like trying to decipher a dream. You were able to block out the things that really had become kind of the, the root cause. I mean, you know, it's like harder liquor. Yeah, vodka. That I can still continue to drink, but I probably shouldn't drink this particular thing. 
I used to have uh, false teeth that I could pull out, which is really fun at parties in front of little kids. You'd be in a restaurant, plop your teeth out and stare at them and go, Doi. and they're like, look, mommy, don't look at that man. And then you pull your teeth back in and go, hi, and smile. And you know what is I mean? Is this from falling off the top of a cab? It's from getting in a car crash and going through a windshield when I was 13. That's another whole story. That's a beautiful story I illustrated. I'm going to do it again really nicely in the Tony's True Tales. So my friend Richie Stenz in New York used to say, Tony Millionaire, he's an enigma. He's got a bottle of vodka in the pocket, and God knows where the teeth are. That was his, uh, he'd say that every time I saw him. The bottle of vodka was always in the pocket. It was a half pint or a pint in the in the suit jacket pocket. So you'd go to a bar, and you'd just sneak some drinks, and you don't have to pay, you know, 50 bucks when you're a starving cartoonist. Yeah. But that's gone. No more bottle of vodka in the pocket. I bought used to buy Gordon's vodka, the shittiest vodka, not because it was cheap, which it wasn't really, but because I loved that little boarhead painting on the cut on the label. Have you seen pure, it? No, purely. Oh, I'm more of a whiskey drinker, but purely aesthetic purposes, you bought that bottle of vodka. Yeah. At a certain point, you know, it's sort of, and this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people who have like gone through the program and end up cutting out. Is you know, you realize you kind of end up making the same stupid mistakes over and over again, and it's clear that there's that something needs to change. Everybody's got their own ways. Uh, I, this whole idea of moderation usually does not work for anybody. For some reason I administered to it because I knew I have been thrown in jail like four or five times just for being vodka drunk. The various boosts they have are. are they have their own effects. Vodka is, is insanity, brings you straight to insanity. Whiskey brings you straight to anger. Tequila makes you kind of like, you know, psychedelic a little bit, even though you're drunk. Gin just makes you shit-faced, blathering an idiot. But the vodka is like a sharp, insane, bing. It's like methamphetamine almost. It sounds like you became pretty domestic in the past, you know, 15, That's only because years. of time. And I knew that I love kids and I always wanted to have some kids. And I met Becky, and it was perfect. Just everything lined up just right. So I fell in love and had some kids. Now, then I'm like, no, I have to like calm down a bit. But I'm in my neighborhood, and I'm like, oh, it's Tony. Don't tell him we're having a Christmas party. <laughs> I mean, I live in the fucking suburbs now, of course. Like, oh boy, yesterday I got it was New Year's Eve, and I drank maybe a. Have a bottle of champagne all by myself. I'm like, what? Was part of it the the change in geography? In a lot of ways, Los Angeles is, isn't an uh, easier place than New York to become domestic. I've been in New York for close to 15 years at this point. I love that city. And it's just... I loved it yeah. before it became what it is now. I don't even know. I don't recognize it anymore. Yeah. You know, obviously, the, the, the energy and all these other yeah. aspects of it are just... No, I love it there. You... It was a great place. It's a great place to live yeah. before you... I mean, there's a lot of people that raise the kids there, and that's fine. That's great. But I don't want to do that. I want to go. I want to, you, you want to kind of recreate what you had when yeah. you were a kid. And for me, what I had was I lived way in the middle of the woods. But I'm not going to do that because it's nice out there. It's pretty, but it gets really dull really fast. So I live in a place where I can drive into town for, in 20 minutes. And uh, it all happened because of timing. I got I got a wife. I got some kids. And I was like, oh, nuts. I got to live in L.A. because I found out that I thought I was going to come here and, with, and find and get a hold of Becky, yeah. get marry her, and then move her back east and go up to the Hudson River or something and get a house so I could drive into town. But you were planning on escaping the city either way. Just I wanted on, to get out of the city, different, yeah. Different coast. Up the Hudson River is out of the city into a small town, but close enough that you can get into the city if you on a Friday night. City life wasn't for you anymore? Yes. It's never been. I always knew it was temporary. I always knew I'd go back to the country. I mean, I grew up in the woods. My dad built a house in an apple orchard, and I'm finally starting to get back. To, it was so beautiful. You know, in the springtime, the whole 
yard and the neighbor's yard was just filled with apple blossoms. It was gorgeous. It's like walking down the street in Washington, D.C., cherry blossom time. What brought you to New York in the first place? Uh, the thrill of adventure. I went to um, college in Boston. Then I went from there to Berlin because I wanted to hang out with some crazy, wacky people. And the punk rock scene was kind of dying out, or the new wave, whatever you want to call it. And so I went out there and had a really great time there for like five years in Berlin. And I came back here, and uh, my friends lived in New York. They said, come to New York. So I went to New York. It was fun. I started getting a career going. It was, it was never about a career, though. It was always about, like, I needed some money to pay for my weekend, pay the rent. It wasn't quite, I'm going to get this out of my system necessarily, but more like, I know eventually I'm going to move back to the kind of place that I was from. Now, nothing's ever been getting out of my system. Yeah. But I, was, I wanted to get it into my system. I wanted to get more crazy shit. So it's like, yeah, but no, but I knew I had to go through the process of being in the city, living the life. You're right, getting out of the system, yeah. that kind of thing, but... Just living that, I wanted to live that insane, crazy, fun life, which I did. And then I knew eventually when that was done, go back to the country, go back to the woods. So, you know, even though Pasadena is not going back to the country or the woods, there is a possum that lives in my backyard. Built a little cave out there with straw. We're not going to chase him away. He's cute. There's skunks that come by. There's coyotes in the streets all the time. So I feel almost like I'm more in the woods than I was when I was a kid. A big grouse came into our backyard one time, and my dad who said, Daddy, Daddy, a turkey. And he saw it, and he came running out and opened the window with a shotgun and blasted it, and we all ate that for dinner. That's the kind of woods I grew up, even though it was like a modern artist house. Comics often tend to attract pretty introverted antisocial people yeah, because yeah, sure. of the sheer nature of having to do something for so long. It sounds like part of having grown up where you grew up and being attracted to that world mm -hmm. is that being alone is important for you, that you know that you need sort of these long stretches oh, yeah. of, of quiet and focus. Yeah. That's what I get from John, a comic. I go in the garage. I, I like to work at night because in the day, the phone's ringing, somebody wants to do something, the kids need something. At night, after around 10 or 11 o'clock, it's quiet. I go in the garage and I work till six in the morning. Because fortunately, I can get up at three in the afternoon. The, my wife's taking the kids to school and back. And, you know, because she gets up at six no matter what you do. She just likes to get up at six and she likes to do stuff like, you know, drive the kids to school. I can't, I don't like, I'm not very good with schedules. I just fuck up all the time. When the kids get home from school, I take them to the park. I go out, you know, to the woods and up, we go up into the canyons and go on hikes and stuff. And it works out fine. Has that always been your schedule? Pretty much always. When the kids were babies, I had to be up and around. Yeah. But, you know, I would just sleep when I could. Prior to that, you've always been nocturnal? Prior to that, I was always I was usually up to like 2 in the morning. But nowadays, now that I have to really avoid the barrage of children and things that I have to do, I work until 6. The sun's coming up. I'm like, yeah, shit, i got to go to bed. It's kind of hard to stop it, though, when you're like that deep into it, drawing and drawing fixing my flintlock pistol in the garage and just all the stuff that you do when you're all alone in your studio. You still draw every day? Uh, yeah, pretty much every day. I actually started doing this thing when I've been drawing cats because I'm working on these books and drawing on the books doesn't provide any kind of regular income. It, you know, when the book's done, I'll get paid. And when the book, when I got my advance, I got an advance, but that's long gone. So now I just go on Twitter and I'm like, yeah, I'll draw a picture of your dog or your cat, you know, and I'm old enough and have enough of a career that I can charge enough money to, to get away with that. And so people draw, people like hire me to draw cats and dogs. I'm like, I kind of sometimes I think to myself, oh my God, I'm reduced to drawing cats and dogs, but I love drawing cats and dogs. And it's actual drawing. And it's like, you know, you've got to draw it so that it looks like the cat. You've got to draw it so that it looks interesting and good. Yeah. You've got to, when you cross hatch with it, 
You can't do stupid crosshatch. You've got to do good crosshatch. It's, it's somebody's pet, so you can't really phone it in. They want... No, it's pretty easy. I mean, you've got to... They send photographs, so it's yeah, yeah. It's pretty easy to catch a likeness if you know what you're doing. You're taking it very seriously, even though it's, you know... You could say that. I mean, it only takes me a day to draw a cat. It's fun. It's like no thought for me to draw somebody's dog. I turn on the radio. I drink some beer. I put the piece of paper on there. I'm like, oh, good. I don't have anything that I really have to do. I'll just draw the dog. I put the paper down there, and I just draw it. I don't even think about it. I just draw it. Uh, you've come full circle from uh, houses to yeah, right. drawing pets. Yeah. Right? I draw I mean, houses, too. I'm back to drawing houses. But it's great because it's like I'm drawing, which I love to do. I'm yeah. doing the most mindless shit you can do. Well, not really, but it's just mindless enough that it's interesting. That it's not. I mean, it's just not mindless enough that it's it's just unmindless enough. It's just dismindless enough that it's interesting, but it's um, but you don't have to think about it, so it's fun. I listen to talk radio. Is it meditative? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, it would be if I wasn't listening to uh, old-time radio reruns of Gunsmoke on the radio all the time. Then I'm meditating by listening to Gunsmoke. Gosh, Mr. Dillon. I, I can't put on the TV, though, till after work. Then I ride a bike, stationary bike, and watch Hogan's Heroes episode. Would you say that drawing is still the most fulfilling, most pleasurable thing that you do, even after having done it for so long? No, drawing, watching really good TV yeah. and uh, drinking beer is the most pleasurable thing. Laying down, doing nothing. I have back pain all the time, so if I lay down and watch a, some really good, you know, Sopranos reruns or something yeah. good on TV, and drinking beer, it's just the greatest. And then I, knowing that afterwards, I'm going to go draw somebody's dog in the garage. There you go. That was Tony Millionaire. Recorded that one at a hotel in Los Angeles last time I was down in Southern California. Thanks to him for taking the time. His upcoming book is called Tony's True Tales. You can check out most of the rest of his work over at Dark Horse and Fanagraphics. Thanks to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you have your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's irylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. And if you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. That is about it for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L.